0: I'm Sienna. I'm the kid. I'm Sarah. I'm the mom. This is Queer Kids Straight
1: Mom. Let's talk. Welcome back to Queer Kids Straight Mom. We are so excited today to introduce our guest. Dr. Katherine Lowe is a pediatrician with the Montana chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She is also a national spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's done a lot of work at the local, state, and national level advocating for gender-diverse youth. She recently co-authored a book on puberty for youth that is inclusive of all genders. Her book is called *Uology: A Puberty Guide for Everybody. It is published by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me.
0: We wanted in part to have you on because as a lot of our listeners probably know, one of the things that has been a big priority for a certain political party over the last couple of years has been to restrict access to gender affirming health care, in particular for minors and also starting to expand more recently into everybody. So we wanted to have you on to try to kind of dispel some of the confusion and misinformation that has been really prominent in the press and the hearings surrounding those bills, especially given that Governor Greg Gianforte of Montana just signed the version of that bill in Montana into law. So we really wanted to have you on to kind of the accurate information out there, given how much misinformation there is.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. And I just want to kind of echo what you've said is that this legislative session here in Montana, there has been so much misinformation and disinformation put out there by a number of legislators. So I feel it is incredibly important to have various means to get the correct, accurate, real life information out there.
1: Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, as kind of a jumping-off point, because I think the procedure is one of the things. The the sort of process of accessing gender-affirming healthcare is one of the things that people have a lot of confusion about. If a person under the age of eighteen is expressing the desire to medically transition, what is the process that um, their doctor is fo- would follow, and what conditions kind of need to be met for them to access that healthcare?
2: Yeah. And I would say the answer to that question, the, the brief answer, and then I can go into more details, but the brief answer is as a pediatrician, if someone comes in needing treatments relating to gender, that is just like every other type of routine medical care we provide. To, so the process is no different than any other medical care we provide. This is evidence-based best practice medicine that we have guidelines to follow. This medical care is endorsed by every major medical organization in the United States. So as medical providers, this is routine care. This is no different than any other care. Now, to describe that a bit more, um, if a family comes in to see a pediatrician and they are talking about their child wanting to start some medical treatments related to gender, As always, we would take a very thorough history from them. So we would talk a lot to them about why they feel they want this. We would talk to them about their gender identity and the journey they've been on. We would talk about the medical treatments, as we do with all medications, and talk about how they work, what the risks are, what the benefits are, just like we do for every medication. (laughs) And then We typically use a multidisciplinary approach to this care. So that means we would talk to the family about, have they seen a mental health provider? Have they worked with a therapist to talk about their gender and what goals they have and what might be best for them? We often will pull in social services to work with the family as well to assist them And we, as a medical provider, will talk about all of this and we will see them multiple times and multiple visits because this is a lot of information to cover, right? So we'll see them back and we'll have multiple conversations. We'll hear back from their mental health therapists and other professionals involved and really get a team approach to this care before any decisions are made about should this child start a medication or not. So- just to be clear, I really want to stress there's typically multiple visits involved before any medication is started. And there are often multiple professionals involved over a long um, period of time before any medication is started. So this medical care, like all medical care, is very thoughtful, is evidence-based is very careful, is very individualized. There is no one set treatment for every child. It's very individualized. And this medical care is developmentally appropriate. It all depends on the development of the child and where they're at. It's all really based on what support they have, what support do they need to have in place. So it's very, it's a very slow, methodical, thoughtful process.
0: I appreciate that because I think that really demonstrates like there can be problems with the implementation of gender affirming healthcare, but it's not because there's something particularly wrong with gender affirming healthcare. It's just because the healthcare system has problems and it's often overburdened, and people don't have access to the funds that they need to pay for their own healthcare. And so, this is really not a unique problem to gender affirming healthcare. And I think that answer really sort of demonstrates that.
2: Yeah, I think you bring up another good point is that there are a lot of barriers already in place. Even before bills are being signed into law, there are already a lot of barriers for kids to access medical treatments related to gender. You mentioned finances, insurance, lots of families don't have insurance to cover medications or have it, but their insurance plans won't pay for it. Lots of families in rural communities might not have access to a medical provider who can provide this care. They may or may not have the ability to travel to maybe a larger city to access this care. So there are already so many barriers in place for gender diverse kids to get the health care that is medically necessary, that it really is so incredibly harmful to see there being more barriers Put in place such as
1: this law in montana it's interesting when you hear people presenting it as if it's a whim and you go in and you ask for something and you get it and all these kids are doing it because it's so easy you have to be doing it because you have to these are people that feel like they don't have an alternative because who would go through all of that just for like a trend and I think that that is something people don't know is that it's that complicated. So it helps to hear the process and talk about the barriers that this is not, it's not easy. It's not a quick fix to a made up problem. It's very, very complex. Yes, exactly. And and one other
2: difficult piece I'll add into that list that we've already made. It's not easy for all of those reasons. And It's not easy for a child to feel safe to speak up about this, first of all, to their parent or caregiver and ask for help. And secondly, to professionals. And I'd like to think professionals are always safe people for gender diverse youth to go to. However, it's that's a still still a very vulnerable thing for a child to bring up and talk about and ask for help. So that's yet another hard part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean an interesting statistic that I came across while I was doing research on a school project was it was something that like 20% and I think that's a low ball but I'd rather low ball than high ball. 20% of trans people have delayed seeking healthcare just in general because of the stigma that they've encountered previously. So there is a huge fear of being judged and and not being taken seriously. So like you said, it's really not like there there has to be such a huge pressure on you to be willing to take that step. That's another thing that people don't understand.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And perhaps a lot of people who are wanting to access gender-affirming care Perhaps they've experienced at their provider's clinic situations where they sense their provider maybe isn't open to being inclusive of all genders. Perhaps people who are wanting to access this care are seeing the headlines all over the news every day that show our national leaders really talking in hostile ways about trans and gender diverse people. You know, people see the headlines. And that creates more fear for
1: talking to others about your
2: gender identity and asking for support.
1: It is heartbreaking to me to think about how just scary and isolating that must feel if you're feeling like I need to tell somebody this thing. But you're hearing the news and it just breaks my heart thinking about kids going through that. Statistically, is there an age that most kids express a desire for gender affirming treatment?
2: You know, I don't think there are exact statistics about that. There is research that shows that people choose to pursue medical care at any age in life regarding gender. So first of all, on that note, I want to be clear, there are no medications for kids prior to puberty. Some kids may express a transgender or gender diverse identity prior to puberty, but there are no medical interventions to be done prior to puberty beginning. That being said, kids and adults may know their gender identity to be gender diverse in some way at any age in life. When I say trans. I mean that as a big umbrella term, meaning anybody who identifies as anything other than cisgender, just for the sake of simplicity talking. So many trans adults will look back on their life and have said they knew from their very earliest memories that they were trans. Others don't come to that understanding until adulthood. So some kids early preschool years might know they're transgender. Some kids might discover this in elementary school. Around the time of puberty is a time when a lot of youth often come to the understanding that they are trans. Once their body starts to change and develop sex characteristics, more masculine or feminine, and their body starts changing, that is a common time for kids to realize that their gender identity is different than the gender people have assigned to them. So puberty is a particularly common time when youth graduate high school and move away from their family. That's another time when a lot of people might come to this understanding. And then again, all throughout adulthood, people might come to this understanding for the first time. So they're really... I want to just stress it's so unique for each individual as far as when they come to the understanding that they are gender diverse. And the second piece is that it also varies as to when an individual feels safe to share that information with others, right? So those are two different things when the individual knows their identity and then when they choose to share it. So there is no one way, there's no one right time for people to do any of that it's really so individualized for every person
0: yeah I mean I know in my experience I started sort of questioning my gender identity around eighth grade and it was sort of one of those things where I I was like hmm kind of exploring and thinking through things And, you know, also sort of becoming aware of the language to express those feelings was a big part of being able to express my gender identity, because what I sort of came to realize was that there were things throughout my childhood where looking back, I'm like, oh, okay, that was probably a manifestation of my discomfort with being labeled female or my discomfort with my gender that, you know, I just didn't have the language for and that, you know, a lot of times would get picked up as, oh, well, you just don't want to be labeled as like you don't want being female to be a a stereotype or being like to be kind of restricting you, which is fine. And a thing that, you know, obviously no little girl should feel restricted by being labeled female. But, you know. As I thought through it, I was like, no, I think there is there's something more than that for me. So that was kind of my experience.
2: Yeah. I think you bring up a good point there, Sienna also is that, you know, when we think about kids and the question as when do they come out as being trans, or the most common age that they come out being trans, I think a really important point about that is when do they have the language to even put that into words and the language for them to even understand that for themselves. And that, too, is really variable when kids have those words and that ability to put their feelings about gender into words.
0: Yeah, a metaphor I find really helpful for language around all kinds of queer identities is color, right? The color chartreuse does not stop existing because you don't know the word chartreuse. But when you go, sorry, I I fixate on chartreuse because I think it's funny. It sounds like it should be pink and it's yellow green. (laughs) It pops into my head, but right. It doesn't go away, but you're you're like, what, how do I describe that color? Yellow? No, that's not quite right. Green? No, that's not right either. Oh, it's chartreuse. (laughs) And it, it doesn't, you know, it was always there, but all of a sudden you have the word to to express it and explain to others yeah, that's that color that I saw in that super ugly car. So that I think is a good way of understanding the way language sort of functions for these identities and experiences of gender. I love that and I love the way
2: you describe that because in that little example when you finally say you know and then you learn the word chartreuse and you're like, that's it like that really I feel like shows like that feeling of getting it right. Mm. And feeling settled in what you call it because you finally have the language and everything falls into place and just feels right. I love that analogy.
1: That also explains really well that it's something that was always there. And I think one of those misconceptions is that you have kids hit the teenage years. There are more out transgender people, so they're seeing it. I think people believe that it's a choice. Like, oh, I want to do that. I want to be that. I think I want to be a girl instead, rather than something that has always been inherently there. They just maybe didn't know how to say it, or it wasn't urgent because they weren't seeing their body changing in those ways. I don't think people understand the deep existence of that feeling. I just read an op ed this morning in the Washington Post, and it mentioned a study that. I'm going to have to actually find the study and maybe post to the website. But I thought this was fascinating. They did brain scans. I guess there's a scent that's similar. I don't know, Katie, you might have seen this. A scent that's similar to like a pheromone that typically male brains react to this scent, like different parts of their brain light up than females. But they found with transgender people in the study that even if they were born with female sex traits, but identify as male, their brain lit up in the same way that males did. So that gender was is in their brains, even if it didn't match with their physical sex. I just thought that was really interesting that the brain reacts that way. It is part of the makeup. Yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't seen that
2: specific study, but there have been other similar studies, a number of them that are similar where they have done imaging of the brain, like MRI or other imaging. And they just look at the structure of the brain comparing cisgender people and transgender people. And that has shown similar results where a transgender woman's brain is more similar in structure to a cisgender woman's brain than a cisgender man's brain, if that makes sense. So, yeah, there's a number of studies that show, you know, part of gender identity might be in the brain they also, scientists are also doing research thinking part of it might be genetic and just in our DNA. So they're still doing a lot of research and there's a lot of theories, but there's quite a bit of research on that brain difference. That's um, so interesting. For sure, so
1: Yeah. It seems so huge. Like people don't know this. Like when I read that, like, I know that there's a lot of scientific basis to, you know, gender being separate from sex. I know there's a lot of research, but that yeah. Seen examples like that. People need to know that this is wired in people's brains. Another of those misconceptions, I think, that I wish more people Absolutely. were aware. We're trying. <laughs> we're trying to, to get
0: that out there. Kind of continuing on with talking about the research surrounding gender identity and gender affirming healthcare obviously one of the really big challenges that the transgender community faces is very high suicide rates. And so we wanted to check in, like, what is the medical response to these high suicide rates? And what does evidence suggest about the impact of gender affirming treatment on suicide rates?
2: Yeah, there is a fair amount of research
0: on that, too.
2: So you know, first of all, yes, you're right. We, there's a lot of research that shows trans youth are at significantly increased risk of depression, anxiety, substance use, self-harm, and suicide. A number of studies show that, you know, around 40% of trans youth attempt suicide during childhood. So almost half. And that's been repeated in many studies which is a real hard number to hear. That being said, there's hope, as you're alluding to. We also have research that shows youth who need gender-affirming care and are able to access it, their risk of suicide drops by over 70%. So gender-affirming care saves lives, period. We know that. We have that in multiple studies. So, as far as what the medical community might do with those numbers, you know, I think as medical providers, it's important that we know both of those numbers. We know the risk of suicide in trans youth, and we know how we can drop that number by providing medically necessary care. So, that means when we're seeing trans youth in clinics, in visits, that we need to be screening them for depression, anxiety, suicidality. We need to be making sure they're working with a trusted therapist if they're having mental health struggles, and we need to support them in getting the medical care that is right for them, whatever that is, Um, whatever is right for them, but we need to help them get that care.
1: I just got a sticker the other day that says trans healthcare saves lives. Perfect. So we know that, um, and knowing that, that that is the course of treatment that saves lives. As a doctor, you know, the medical code of ethics says that your responsibility to your patient is paramount. I imagine this becomes a challenge when a child has parents that object to the appropriate medical treatment for a transgender child. What is the protocol if you know that the care that possibly could save this child's life, a child that's in distress, but their parents vehemently oppose that gender-affirming path?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, there's, again, no one set way to handle that situation. However, it's important for everyone to know gender-affirming medications treatments cannot be prescribed without parental consent. So we cannot treat a child with these medications unless we have both parents consenting, if there are two parents again, 100% clear, we cannot do this unless the parents are on board. So if the parents aren't on board, then it just comes down to working with the parents. And again, as I said earlier, we usually have multiple visits with these families to talk about all of this. And as pediatricians, we often have formed relationships with families over the years. So we continue to work with those parents in our hopefully our trusted um, relationship with them. I think it's important for medical providers to when when the parents are refusing care for their child, I think we really need to be asking those parents why they are refusing that care. And we we need to meet those parents where they are at. So then we can hopefully educate them and help them along their journey of supporting their child. So a lot of parents who refuse to allow their child to start treatment for gender reasons, a lot of those parents, I like to assume good intent, a lot of those parents deeply love their child. Like I like to think every parent does and they're coming from a place of love and they may be really fearful. That if their child is transgender and transitions, they will be in harm's way out in society. And they don't want their child to go down a hard path. And they don't want to put their child at risk of bullying and discrimination and harassment. So if we can talk to the parents and hear their reasoning, and if that is their reasoning, then we can talk about that. And we can talk about how actually medical treatment when it is right for the patient actually is really life affirming and often life saving and often allows any depression and anxiety to go away it actually can help their child to thrive and isn't that what we all want for our kids so it comes down to just having conversations with parents and just talking to them about why are they refusing this care and then Once we can understand why, then we can hopefully talk through that and help educate them. It can also be really helpful to get a mental health therapist involved with the family, another professional to talk to those parents also and help understand where they're coming from and educate going forward. And so we really want to just keep working with those parents over time and never walk away from them, but really encourage continued conversations to help them know how to best support their child.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. Like most parents are not, you know, bigots who just hate transgender people. And oh, no, my child can't be one. Like they're seeing politicians and pundits talking about, oh, these are the terrible things that are going to happen if your child transitions and oh the terrible, terrible, terrible. And they're just scared of those like they're scared because they're misinformed. And yeah, like you said, kind of assuming best intentions and being willing to engage because, again, most parents aren't the politicians who are, you know, spewing hateful rhetoric. They're just regular people who want to do the best thing for their child and they just might be a little bit misguided.
2: Yeah, and that's a good point. You bring up, too, is so much of the narrative, though this is changing, but so much of the narrative about trans people in society is negative, mm-hmm. right? Especially right now with legislatures talking all this negative stuff about trans people, when the reality is a lot of trans people are out there living their lives in a really safe way. They feel loved. They feel supported. They're thriving in their work. A lot of trans kids are thriving and they're on the honor roll in school and they're community leaders and they're doing volunteer work and they're involved in activities. Like that's the reality is a lot of trans people actually are great. And being trans is just a small part of who they are. So if we can help parents hear that other side as well, that might help open some eyes. We can also try to help connect parents to other parents and families who have a trans kid so they can maybe get to know some other families, some other parents who have been through making these decisions also and really hear how it can really be amazing to provide that care for your child.
0: Just something that, you know, isn't shown in a lot of media. It's a thing that I have talked a lot about, but queer joy and trans joy, especially. It's so important to not just be showing the tragic story of, you know, this transgender person who was never accepted and committed suicide. Like, obviously, that's a terrible thing. And it's important that people are aware of that. But also, you know, showing trans people who are living happy lives and including that in every part of like... You know, books and TV and movies and and pop culture and our the stories that we write in newspapers. It's so important because to a huge extent, we are the stories that we consume. Our lives reflect those and then our media then reflects our lives back. And so if we, it becomes this kind of feedback loop that we have to be cognizant of because
1: it plays such a huge role. There's such a fulfilling life that can be lived when somebody is allowed to transition and feel comfortable and affirmed in who they are. Do you find it helpful to like present it to parents that way that I know that you're scared because you are seeing all the horrible things that can happen and thinking about all the horrible things. But if you look at that and then you look at suicide rates when people don't get treatment, the scarier path is not addressing this, because I would imagine most parents don't consider it that way in the beginning. The scarier path yeah. to them is going with it and putting their yes. kid out there in the world as a transgender person. But statistically, that probably is not the more dangerous guy.
2: Right. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And one way I like to explain that to people is I like to say withholding this medical care when it's right for a patient withholding this medical care is not a neutral act withholding this medical care actively harms the patient who needs it because a lot of people parents others talk about the wait and see approach meaning let's not do any medical treatments let's just wait and see let's not do anything so i like to point out yeah withholding this care is not neutral it causes harm. Sometimes that helps too.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a philosophical debate that goes back ages, but it's it's just the idea that not intervening if someone is dying is not neutral, like you said. If someone is actively dying and you have the chance to save them and you don't, you are to an extent culpable there. And that I think carries over to this really well. Like it's not there's not really any such thing as a neutral approach here. Yeah.
2: Absolutely.
1: So what would be a situation that, because there are so many steps this has to go through before you would even start a course of treatment for somebody who's at puberty, what would be a situation that you might say it is better to wait with this child? I'm not sure that this is the right path.
2: I think if there's any uncertainty, getting more help and getting more support to help answer that question. So that would be a place to really pull in mental health therapists to help sort that out. If the family's uncertain, certainly if the youth is uncertain, by no means are we doing medical treatments. It only happens when everyone is certain of that and people can take their time making those decisions. That's a place, well, you may or may not do this, but I did want to just talk briefly about the benefit of puberty blockers. So puberty blockers, that's a medicine that we've used in pediatrics since like 1980. So for decades, for different reasons in kids. So these medicines are very safe and effective. So puberty blockers are medicines that we can give kids to simply pause their puberty so it doesn't progress. And we don't need to add any other hormones to that if that's not right for the child. So we could, if a family is feeling uncertain, but the child is starting puberty and starting to have those permanent sex characteristics happening, we could talk to them and see, is it right to go on a puberty blocker to simply pause their puberty so there won't be any further permanent changes happening so that they can take all the time they need to figure out do they need hormones or not? They can. We can pause puberty for months or years if they need all that time to get the support they need to talk to a therapist, to talk to us more, whatever they need to, to know what is right for them. The thing with puberty blockers is once we stop them, their innate puberty will simply pick up and continue. So there is just nothing irreversible about it. It is fully reversible. So that's a tool we have that we can talk to parents and kids about if a family is uncertain, but puberty has already started just to slow things down.
1: Thank you for explaining that. I think that is one of those misconceptions that there are these experimental, extreme treatments that are going to change this kid forever. And doctors are just, you know, throwing them out left and right. And it's not that at all. So and I it's think not I th- that I think people don't understand the difference between puberty blockers and a hormone treatment. And that's a really important distinction that you're just pausing things. There's a lot more reflection and careful consideration than I think people realize. Yeah, I like to point out to parents and and anyone that
2: there is never a rush. There is never a reason to rush. We can slow things down as much as everyone needs so that everyone is feeling good about the path forward, whatever that path may be.
1: That's so important because that is one of the things I feel like the media is... Using to fear monger now is you see some people saying, oh, my treatments might become, and these are you know generally adults, but my treatments might become illegal in my state. So I need to like go get it now or stock up. Then that gets twisted into now they're like encouraging people to rush out and do it before it's illegal. And that's not the process. It's not like no. you go to the doctor and say, well, I better do it now. No responsible doctor would actually say, Yeah, let's just, let's get this done.
0: And if a trans person is feeling like they have to rush into getting medical treatment because it's going to become
1: illegal, whose fault is that? (laughs) It's, I don't know. It's a mess. It's a big mess. mess. So we've established that there's not a physical treatment of any kind before impending puberty. So what is the process for deciding when... When the time is right and what does that look like? Does a child start taking the puberty blocker today and then things come to a halt? Is it a process? What would that child go through then as that process is starting?
2: Yeah. So, you know, again, it's just, it's very individualized. So there's no one set answer here because there's no one set path. We as medical providers do not have an investment in an outcome for a child other than that that child is happy and thriving and healthy. So it varies on every child, but just to give a general idea. So once a child has entered into stage two of puberty, which we can confirm a variety of ways, they could, if it's right, choose to go on a puberty blocker to stop their innate puberty from progressing and they can stay on that blocker as long as they need to to decide what's the next step for them. They could choose to come off the blocker and continue on their innate puberty or they could choose to go on hormones to help their body go down a different puberty than is innate puberty for them. So this would mean like a child who is assigned male at birth goes on a puberty blocker and decides that they feel better going down feminine puberty, in which case they could go on estrogen or vice versa. So a child assigned female at birth enters puberty, goes on a puberty blocker and decides masculine puberty is best for them, and they could go on testosterone. And as far as when they would add the testosterone or estrogen, there's no right answer. It would be added when it is right for that child. It does not go by a certain age or a certain number. It goes by what is best for that child. And again, their parents need to consent. So when the parents feel that that is the best answer also. Um, So there, there is no timeline. There is no certain age for all of these things to happen. It's just when it's right for the child
1: how about emotional responses to the hormones that's one of the questions that's thrown out there are the hormones leading to mental distress that teenagers are in do you see do you see distress increase ever because of a change in hormones
2: typically when trans youth go on hormones their mental health greatly improves because they are accessing the care that they need and, you know, now we're we're talking about kids in puberty. So they are experiencing their body changing in a way that feels innately wrong for their gender identity. So by far, the majority of the time when trans kids go on hormones, their mental health greatly improves. That being said, a side effect of hormones, whether you're a cisgender person on hormones or a transgender person on hormones, side effect is that it can cause some mood changes. And some emotional instability. So we always need to talk about that with the kids and the parents because that's a side effect. And with all medications, we talk about all the side effects. So we need to let them know it's possible that your child will become more emotional, more moody. But in reality, with trans kids... doesn't happen that much because they know their body is going to be aligned with their inner identity for the first time. And typically, by the time kids are going on medications, they have really struggled with this fear that their body is not aligning with their identity. So typically, it's a huge sense of of relief when they're able to go on medications.
0: Also, like, can confirm... It's much worse to be doing the wrong puberty and having the wrong hormones messing with your brain because then you've got like hormone mood swings on top of, oh, my God, my body is betraying me. Like, I know when I started menstruating, I was like, like, mom, you probably remember I was like completely having breakdowns every time, like, oh my God, I can't do this regularly. Like I cannot continue
1: to go through life like this. I do remember.
2: <laughs> I think that's exactly right for a lot of trans kids that their experience is they cannot keep going through life with their body going down the wrong puberty. And when they get on course with their body going down the right puberty for them, it's again, life affirming and often life saving.
0: So another sort of, thing that's been cropping up a lot more recently is uh, there are a lot of trans people who are also autistic or otherwise neurodivergent. Um, So that might mean, you know, bipolar or um, ADHD or anything kind of along that spectrum. And that's something that I'm very interested in that intersection, because I am both trans and autistic. But it's something that has recently turned into an argument against providing gender-affirming health care. So uh, the argument going that this is basically, this is taking advantage of autistic people, for instance. And so what does evidence suggest about the overlap here? And how does the medical community sort of approach that overlap?
2: Yeah, that's very accurate and has been shown to be true in the research that it goes both ways. So let me see if I can say this and not be confusing, but autistic people are more likely to be transgender than non-autistic people, and vice versa. Trans people are more likely to be autistic. There is some sort of connection. Um, We don't know why. There are a number of theories out there as to why that may be, but we don't know for sure why there seems to be a connection there. I think a concern out there is that people may decline to provide gender-affirming care to an autistic person saying we need to treat the autism first. Treat the autism first. I'm doing quotes. (laughs) Um, And that's really harmful when gender-affirming care is is necessary care. Um, So there's a lot of talk going on about just raising awareness that these two things can both exist. And actually, do both exist together in the same person fairly frequently, being autistic and being trans. So, we need to understand that that's a real thing and certainly happens. And we need to provide medical care for both and treat both of those. And, kind of like you alluded to, Sienna, I think, is we need to not be withholding gender affirming care just because somebody is autistic, but more treat the whole person. And treat all of their needs.
0: Yeah, Missouri's attorney general's emergency order explicitly says you can't give gender affirming healthcare unless you screen a person for autism, and then all symptoms of mental health conditions have been treated and resolved. Which, like, what? I'm sorry. What does it look like to you when my autism is resolved? What do you want from
1: me?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just. horrendous. (laughs) Like We need to treat the whole person in all of their needs. And that being said, again, gender-affirming care always needs to be slow, methodical, thoughtful, multiple visits. All of that still applies to all patients, whether they have autism or not. But yes, this care needs to be accessible to everybody who needs this care. And your point about depression and this idea of we're not going to provide, or in Missouri, Some people have said we should not provide gender-affirming care until the depression is resolved. Oftentimes, the depression is not resolved until the child gets gender-affirming care. So that's another huge misconception out there.
0: Yeah. And it's just, it frustrates me because it's so incredibly, like, it's not just transphobic, it's ableist to say that because you have XYZ disability, you're not capable of making decisions that quote unquote regular people are capable of making or you are being taken advantage of because you don't understand the social things that you're dealing with. You're just confused. Like that's, you know, that's that is
1: ableist. Mm. <laughs> this applies yes. to adults, too, not just kids. Yeah. Yeah. That's really infantilizing yep. In Missouri specifically. Yeah. That's very infantilizing and just oh. contributes
2: to all the stigma out there against, like you're saying, not only trans people, but also autistic people. It just contributes to the stigma, the discrimination, the harassment, the
1: harm. Yeah. This has been longer than our episodes usually are, but we've just been so fascinated with this conversation. Um, Before we close, are there any resources that you would recommend to families who are looking at possibly starting this, this journey with their child?
2: I would recommend to families that they talk to their trusted medical professional, whether it's a pediatrician or family practice doctor, nurse practitioner, whomever, but they start by talking to their healthcare professional. And if they feel that their healthcare professional isn't providing what they need or able to answer all their questions that they ask, who should they go see to get this care? So I, I do recommend talking to healthcare professionals for online resources. There's a lot of great online resources. I, I recommend people getting connected if they have like a local PFLAG chapter for local support or for youth if they're in a school with a LGBT club. Um, but to get connected in your community to other people who are talking about gender in their family and have a gender diverse youth online, Gender Spectrum has a lot of great information for youth and gender. Um, It's written for youth and adults to read, but about how to be accepting and inclusive of all youth, Um, gender spectrum, human rights campaign has a lot of great online information. PFLAG National has a lot of great information. There's a lot of them. Can I say one other message to families out
1: there? Yes, absolutely. Please. Uh,
2: Given I'm in Montana, where, again, our governor just signed a bill into law that attempts to ban gender affirming care. And this is one of many states. I think we're at 14 or something throughout the country. But I I would like parents to know in Montana, and again there'd be some version of this in other states, in Montana, this bill has been signed, quote, into law. And it's important to know the effective date is not until October 1st. So here in Montana, this care is legal today. It is still legal. October 1st is when the law could go into effect. However, the ACLU has released a press statement. They are going to be filing a lawsuit and hopefully they will get an injunction, meaning the law will not take effect until the lawsuit works its way through the courts, which could take years. So I want to send a message of hope that even in Montana, and again, similar in other states, even though law a bill has been signed, this care remains legal and we will continue to fight to hopefully keep this care legal
1: forever so that there is never a day when this care cannot be provided. That's good information. Thank you. And we all can use some hope. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, Sienna, did you have anything else? Here's my pro tip
0: on accessing high quality information. Your Facebook uncle who posts random articles about how trans people are taking over the country ain't it.
1: Yes, exactly. Now we have a good list of like quality sources. So don't don't take your uncle's word over over <laughs> these quality sources that we have provided.
0: On that note, Katie, would you be willing to maybe send us a list of, you know, some of the articles that you've referenced and research and all of that good stuff so we can put that on the website?
1: Sure, you bet. Happy Happy to. to. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you again so much for having this conversation with us. I just really appreciate being able to explain some things that I think a lot of people don't know and hopefully Destigmatize some of this for people that are just getting the message. I like being able to provide the true story. So thank you for doing that, and thank you for the work you're doing just in the community in general, getting this information out there. It's so important for kids to see adults, like as a parent, as an adult, just in general, like having kids. I hate it when they see the world as a place where it's where the adults have malicious intent. And a feeling of helplessness when I see people signing laws that are harmful and that, you know, you always want as a parent to like protect your kids or to say, well, it's going to be okay. And sometimes it's hard to say that, but having voices, educated, professional voices saying here's the information and this is the way it works. Because there are people providing the care you need and there are people that are going to fight every attempt to take that away from you. Using scientific knowledge and medical research, I just think that's really comforting, I would think, for kids to know. I don't know, Sienna, you could speak to that more than than me as the parent, but to know that there are people out there fighting the fight. You too are one of the adults fighting the fight at this point since you're 20 years old. Yeah, I am uh,
0: dark and jaded at this point. But, you know, hopefully <laughs> hopefully, we're, we're creating some light for the kids out there who don't have to... Go through that process of becoming dark and jaded, like I did.
2: <laughs> My hope for the kids too is that they just get to go be kids. Yeah, we will do the fighting for them, right? As three yep. adults right here,
1: and millions of other adults, they get to go be kids. We'll yes. fight this. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. Thank you so much. I'm grateful for that, and yeah, yeah and thank
2: you both for doing all of this, and oh, for yeah. doing your podcast, and for doing this topic, like. This is what we need is just getting accurate info out there to counter all the inaccurate. So really grateful for both of you.
1: Cool. Well, thank you. We really hope this conversation has been helpful to our listeners. Hopefully some questions have been answered and hopefully we've given you some Information that if you hear somebody saying something that just is not accurate about what gender affirming care for minors looks like, you can say, actually, that's not what's happening. This is how the process works. And if we can help anybody through that, hopefully we will do so. As always, any questions you have, help finding resources, just shoot us a message or check out our website. And We, again, are still working out some details about our next episode, so we're not going to give you a topic yet, but stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll catch you next time. If you found this podcast helpful, please consider rating and reviewing us on your
0: podcasting platform of choice. It really helps us to get the word out there and spread this information
1: as far as we can. And as always, check out our website at QueerKidsStraightMom.com or visit us on Facebook, Queer kid Straight Mom, Instagram at queerkid.straightmom, or Twitter at queerkidstr the number 8 mom. And if
0: you're feeling especially generous, please consider joining our Patreon by searching Queer Kids Straight Mom. It helps us fund this podcast.